It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Remember, this is our capital. This is our house. We're not moving until we get our way. A Texas militia member was the first to go to trial in the January 6th insurrection. Prosecutors said that Guy Reffitt, quote, lit the fire of the very first group of rioters that breached the Capitol. And they not only had photos of him storming the Capitol, they had video from his own helmet camera. Taking the Capitol after this. I didn't come here to play games. I'm taking the Capitol. I just want to see Pelosi's head hit everything. on the way out. Reffitt had the sad distinction of being turned in by his own teenage son. Jackson Reffitt told CNN his father had threatened him and his sister as it became clear that law enforcement was hunting down rioters. He said, choose a side or die. And if I chose a certain side, I would cross a line and he would do something he didn't want to do. The jury took less than four hours to convict Reffitt of all charges, including obstruction of Congress, a crucial victory for the Justice Department. Joining me is Eric Larson, a Bloomberg legal reporter who covered the trial. Eric, tell us what the charges against Reffitt were. So Mr. Reffitt was accused of basically leading the first crowd of rioters that went up the steps of the terrace and eventually broke into the Capitol. So they claimed that he really led them on, egged them on, encouraged them to more forcefully confront the police, which they did. They also claimed that he was armed with a pistol, a loaded gun at the time, and that he had traveled to Washington from Texas with an AR-15 as well, which he had left in his hotel room. So they claim that he went there prepared for battle and prepared to fight and that that is what he did. Was there a reason why he was tried first of all the January 6th rioters? Not that I'm aware of. You know, more than 750 people have been charged. Only around 200 or so pleaded guilty. So there are hundreds of people who are supposedly going to go to trial here. Um, It just seems that this one sort of moves the fastest. We're going to see a, a lot of trials later this year. I think it was just the luck of the draw for him. Let's talk about the prosecution's case. And what was so unusual and telling was that his son was the government's star witness against him. Yeah, that's correct. That was a real twist. His then 18-year-old son contacted the FBI 
informed them about his father's involvement in the riots, and even went so far as to secretly record his father talking at the kitchen table, to put his iPhone down on the table and just let his father speak as he was bragging about all of his activities on January 6th. So he really went pretty far in trying to help the government. And one of his reasons for doing so is that at one point, as his father realized that so many rioters were being arrested and charged, he threatened his children to keep them quiet, knowing that they had different political views than he did and knowing that they had some pretty incriminating information. He told them that speaking with law enforcement would be treason and that traitors get shot, as they put it. And some Capitol Police officers testified. Did one break down on the stand? There were several who testified, and one in particular, uh, she was in the command center during the riot. And, you know, they have several different commanders and officers in this room with lots of screens watching different uh, camera feeds from all over the Capitol. They've got all the radios with them. And she just described as the scene just deteriorated and they saw rioters running through the building and started to hear officers screaming for help on their radios. And they just realized that there was only so much they could do, that they really felt unprepared. And she she broke down crying describing it. So it was fairly emotional for, for some of them. Talk about how federal prosecutors built their case against him. You know, what kinds of evidence they used besides direct testimony? You know, it was really a lot of evidence, I have to say. They really built the case as if someone, you know, in this case, the jurors didn't know anything about the riot. I think that they all did. But they really explained how it occurred, what happened. They showed the video footage of people attacking. They had witnesses talk from the Senate floor explaining how they had to abandon the session, all to back up all of the various charges for obstruction of Congress and being armed on Capitol grounds and things like this. They showed photographs from Mr. Ruffett's house when they raided it, showing the gun sitting on his nightstand and then comparing it to pictures taken during the riot where they say he had the same gun on his hip. So cell phone footage from other rioters, Mr. Ruffett's own helmet-mounted camera, his Zoom calls with other militia leaders, things like that. So they really, they put it all out there. And the defense didn't call any witnesses at all. What was the defense? Of course, defendants aren't required to put on a case, and the judge you know, instructed the jury that that shouldn't be interpreted as any sort of admission of guilt or anything like that. But based on the cross-examination of the witnesses, the defense was basically that Mr. Ruffett didn't hurt anyone, didn't damage any property, didn't steal anything, and didn't interfere with any attempts by law enforcement to arrest anyone, and also that he didn't enter the Capitol. Um, of course, he isn't accused of any of those things. So it was a fairly limited defense. He was stopped by pepper spray before he could go in the Capitol that day. But by then, as the prosecution alleged, he had already encouraged and led everyone else up the stairs. So the defense was really focused on saying that Ruffett hadn't done things that he wasn't accused of. There was some attempt to illustrate that there wasn't enough evidence that he was armed, but the jury clearly did not buy that. There was actually an audio recording of Mr. Reffitt in the mob that day bragging that he had a gun with him. So it really didn't work out with the jury. The jury didn't take very long to come back with guilty on all charges. Was this trial a test for prosecutors in some ways? I would say so. I think that especially the obstruction of Congress charge There's been some, I wouldn't say controversy, but some dispute 
over whether or not Congress was technically in session at the moment that the Capitol was breached and whether or not, you know, the counting of uh, the certification of the votes qualifies as the kind of legal proceeding that can be obstructed, sort of technical arguments around that. And clearly, the judge had denied a motion to dismiss that charge earlier. And of course, it went to trial and, and the jury agreed based on the evidence that Congress was in session, that what was happening was an official proceeding of the government, and that it was obstructed by the actions. So I did speak with a former federal prosecutor who said that that was an important test to see if a jury would agree that Congress had been obstructed, since that is a charge that we'll see in so many of these cases. Yeah, um, prosecutors trying to elevate some of the cases beyond misdemeanor and trespassing. Another judge dismissed that charge against a January 6th rioter this week, saying the law was meant to apply more specifically to destroying documents or records in connection with the proceeding. So we may actually see that that question go up to the D.C. Circuit. Yeah, I think that we probably will. And, you know, the defense lawyer, after the jury verdict was handed down and the jury was dismissed, the defense lawyer did renew his request to have the case thrown out which is not uncommon after a trial, but he specifically cited that ruling, which had come in another case in D.C. just the prior day, I believe. And the judge had already had her uh, decision prepared on that and said that regardless of that earlier decision, uh, she's standing by her finding that that Congress was in session and was obstructed. Uh, She said, well, basically what you just said, we'll have to wait and see. It's a question that might might be decided by the D.C. Circuit. But she seems to think that the words in the statutes were being defined too narrowly in that decision the day before, and that she's standing by her more broad interpretation. So will this be a bellwether for the trials to come in perhaps the way the prosecution laid out the case? You know, it's possible. It's hard to predict. But I think one thing that uh, the judge uh, at some point during the trial when the jury wasn't around sort of not admonished, but said to the prosecution, you know, you're really doing too much here, almost uh, like too, showing too much evidence or showing the same evidence too many times, getting too many witnesses to say the same things. So in a way, she was kind of like, look, you've, <laughs> you've made your case, move on. And just from having watched it, it was a six-day trial. They really did put on so much evidence to prove things that maybe in our minds we feel like, yeah, we already know this right happened. We know this happened. We know this happened. But I think they really wanted to just sew everything up from every angle and just make it sort of impossible to work around the charges. You know, they really have to get around that that doubt. So uh, we'll see you. Well, I guess that shows how much the first trial means to sort of set a standard. And also, I think this means that a lot of defendants whose trials are coming up are going to end up pleading. You know, that would definitely make sense. That's what some uh, have been speculating here, that once they saw how effective the prosecution was at presenting the government's case and how quickly the jury accepted the evidence to back the charges, that they really wanted to take that chance and go to trial if they can get some lesser time. And we have seen that some defendants who have pleaded guilty are getting some seemingly short sentences. I mean, just a day or two ago, one defendant, a current FAA employee who's been suspended and he participated in the riot, pleaded guilty to illegal parading in the Capitol. He took a photo in front of Nancy Pelosi's office. He was one of the first people in the building. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to no time behind bars and three years of probation. Um, And the government actually had requested only two weeks behind bars. 
So he ended up getting none. So clearly, you know, say what you will about whether that was too lenient or not. Um, there clearly, as many defense lawyers know, a benefit to pleading out at some point. It's interesting that outside the courthouse after the verdict, Refit's wife told other defendants not to take a plea deal. Don't take a plea. Do not take a plea. They want us to take a plea. The reason that we have all guilty verdicts is they are making a point out of guy, and that is to intimidate the other members of the one sixers. And we will all fight together. We'll see what happens there. So what is he facing when he's sentenced on June 8th? I know that Jacob Chansley, the QAnon shaman, as he's known, was sentenced to more than three years in prison on, I think, the obstruction charge. Yeah, well, as you know, a lot of these maximum sentences, you know, they never end up being the amount that is handed down. And when there are multiple counts, they're not always placed on top of each other. They're sort of put together. So I think the maximum um, sentence for the obstruction charge alone is, is 20 years. I think you could add them all up and say, you know, maybe it's like 60 years or something, but I don't think it would be anything like that. So we'll see. This uh, judge has set sentencing for June 8th. So we'll see. That'll be another important test to see what judges give these defendants if they're convicted at trial. Right, because usually there's an extra sort of added on if you make the government prove their case at trial instead of pleading out like Chansley did. So the trials that are happening later this year, the most serious charges against the insurrectionists involve two group trials? That's right. Um, they're mostly from this group called the Oath Keepers. Uh, for the record, Mr. Ruffett was with a militia group called the Three Percenters. Uh, but these uh, trials coming up later uh, are mostly Oath Keepers here. There's one in April for some of these militia members who are charged with conspiracy. So that's going to be a real interesting case to see whether these conspiracy charges can stick at trial the same way we saw in this, this trial just now, whether or not an obstruction of Congress charge can stick. This will show if a much more serious conspiracy charge works. Then in July, we'll see another group of Oath Keepers um, who have been charged with the most serious uh, charge in the, in, from the right, which is sedition. So I think a lot of people will be watching that to see how far the government can take this attempt to essentially overthrow Congress and force Congress to allow Trump to essentially have another term in office. So whether or not that's sedition still remains to be seen. And the former chairman of the Proud Boys was arrested. Was that a big arrest? You know, I, it's, uh, he had already, he was arrested yesterday in Miami, and he's been added to an earlier case um, against some other Proud Boys, and that's another conspiracy case. And I believe that one goes on, uh, to trial in May, or at least it's scheduled to at this point. Um, it's unclear of, of adding um, uh, Henry Tario is his name. Uh, whether that may slow things down. But uh, I, I would say it's not a surprise, only because, you know, he was the leader of the group, and the group was clearly deeply involved uh, in the planning of um, that uh, march on the Capitol. Um, and, uh, you know, you might remember during the, uh, during the presidential debate, um, uh, Trump was asked to condemn white supremacy and, and militia groups uh, and groups like the Proud Boys, and he said to the Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. Of course, Trump was pretty widely criticized uh, for that 
Um, so the, the fact that the leader of the Proud Boys has been added to this isn't too surprising to me. Um, but uh, I spoke uh, with his lawyer yesterday. Um, he didn't want to comment, but uh, uh, he, he was wondering whether or not um, uh, the, the case would go to trial as planned in, in May. Thanks, Eric. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine heads toward the two-week mark, the stakes are escalating. Russian President Vladimir Putin said again on Sunday the war will continue until Ukraine accepts his demands and halts resistance. Are we in danger of a new Cold War? Joining me is Michael Doyle, a professor at Columbia Law School and Columbia School of International and Public Affairs. Start by telling us about the Cold War and when it ended. Well, whenever we say the word Cold War, everyone in my generation, the ones before and the one after, of course, thinks about the Cold War, which is the conflict and the contest between the Soviet Union and the United States, the Soviet Union supported by the Warsaw Pact, the U.S. by NATO, that starts up in 47 and ends roughly with Gorbachev somewhere about 1990. So that's the Cold War. And it's a contest between two superpowers, the U.S., the USSR, divided by two polar opposite uh, ideologies of communism and capitalism, also different political systems of dictatorship and democracy. That's sort of the Cold War. But what I think we should realize is that there are many other conflicts in international history that are special, even if they're not identical. And what makes them special 
is that there are contests that are not just over a different interest at stake, you know, who controls that province or this province, or who can get the most out of a trade deal and become wealthier. There are conflicts about legitimacy, wherein one partner or one state regards the other as, in some form or another, illegitimate. That is, that it holds territory that it should not, or that its political system is violative of the principles of the rival. So I think we need to expand the meaning of Cold War to take into account those conflicts over legitimacy. And there are a number of them, and the danger is, is that we may be entering a new one today, in which the U.S. and its liberal capitalist democratic allies face off against China and Russia as uh, nationalist uh, autocracies that are also corporatist in their economic orientation. And there's a danger of that that's emerging today. What would you say the situation between the U.S. and Russia has been for the last, let's say, two decades? I would go back sort of to three decades. That is, the Cold War ended in 1990. And then there was 10 years, roughly, when Russia was unfortunately in a bit of of crisis under President Yeltsin, economically and politically, but nonetheless was verging in a direction of shared universal values, as Gorbachev had announced, and movements toward elections and democracy and more of a free market. And that era was one of very considerable cooperation, though not equality, in the 1990s. Starting around the period of 20 years ago, we began to see some deterioration. Russia itself experienced failures in democracy, very problematic movements uh, moving towards a party that was more hegemonic and less tolerant of dissent. At the same time as we saw the emergence of Mr. Putin, a strong man who built a coterie of oligarchs and party officials around himself, determined to reverse the losses that the Soviet empire had experienced with its collapse in 1990. And so starting then and then peaking about 2012, the full Putin regime was put in place, a regime in which the state controls media, controls overall corporate activity, and is able to extract rents for it, for its, for its cronies, and manipulates the elections that do occur, such as there's no real accountability, and adopts a quite aggressive foreign military policy in places like Georgia, Syria, and then, of course, most recently in uh, Ukraine. Do you have a theory about why Putin now decided to invade Ukraine and start this war? I think it was a it was an opportunity. He saw the uh, the West, that is the NATO allies, uh, being both weak and quite divided, increasing dependence upon Russian gas that he thought would deter any united front. He just came off a very successful military campaign in which he propped up. Assad in Syria and routed uh, those who were trying to overthrow Assad. So there's a great deal of confidence on the military side, a sense of vulnerability looking into uh, Western Europe, which appeared divided to him. And he was also, I think, concerned that Mr. Zelensky, you know, the then newly elected president, had the capacities for mobilizing Ukraine in a way that made him very far from the kind of clients that he had previously experienced in uh, Kiev. 
And so we saw Ukraine slipping away. He saw the West disunited, and he'd just come off a very successful military campaign that made him quite confident in the capabilities of his army. So it, it looked like an opportunity to him. Are we entering another phase of a Cold War, or might it even be worse because he's threatening to use Russia's nuclear capabilities? My own view is that we, you know, for the past 10 years, we've been inching towards a Cold War in uh, suspicions, cyber war, industrial warfare with both Russia and China that have been boiling under the surface uh, for quite a long time. Um, we had a little proxy war in Syria, which, uh, which so to speak, the West lost, you know, partly because we had no idea which side we were fighting for, frankly. Uh, we certainly weren't fighting for ISIS, which was the major opponent of uh, Assad. Uh, so that uh, you know, we're, we're in a in that kind of a, of a of a different world where we've been edging towards a cold war. I suspect that this will solidify it in very significant ways, in the same way that the coup in Czechoslovakia in 1948 and uh, the war in Korea solidified uh, the first cold war. This will solidify. Not an iron curtain, but a very significant disarticulation, you know, splitting up of uh, the world along uh, ideological lines between autocracy and democracy, as President Biden said. Now, there will be strong pushback against that. The Chinese don't want to enter that kind of a split world. They want to be on both sides. They want the economy of the West and the and the polity, the the politics of Putin, and they've tried to play that middle course. It'll be very difficult now, but they don't want a full blown Cold War. And the Europeans, of course, would have immense economic cost if there's something like an Iron Curtain that goes down between Western Europe and and uh, Russia. The United Nations estimates that more than one and a half million people have fled Ukraine since Russia began bombing. Some countries, Poland, Romania, I think Slovakia and elsewhere, are taking them in. Well, what's happening is that these deeply unfortunate people are fleeing for their lives to the border. And as you say, it's, it's quite striking, the welcome uh, that they're receiving in the countries you just mentioned, Poland and including Hungary to a certain extent, and certainly uh, Romania and others have, have stepped forward to welcome the refugees. That's exactly the right thing to do, and they should all deserve commendation for that. Over time, unless we expect, you know, some kind of a quick magical peace and everything gets returned to normal right away, or normal, that is, the independence of Ukraine and peace, which I think is very unlikely, they're going to be in a protracted situation of having to live outside their home country at the expense of, uh, so far, generous Poles and others. And I think it's going to be very important uh, that at least the financial burdens of supporting uh, these refugees, a million and a half now, who knows how many more are coming, should be shared. It should be shared in Europe. It should be shared globally. The U.S. has announced that we'll be providing $10 billion of support for Ukraine, humanitarian and refugee assistance. That'll probably go through the, the Congress. And a refugee cost roughly 10,000 euros or so per year. 
So you multiply the figures out, and one is talking about a considerable number of billions of dollars that will need to be invested to support them in their asylum in uh, the countries, what is now the West. So this will be a, a humanitarian crisis that's not going to go away quickly. And it's one that we need to share, at least financially. So the EU has agreed to grant temporary residence to mm-hmm. Ukrainians, access to employment, social welfare and housing for up to three years. Is three years enough? And also, why hasn't the UK done that? It's a good question. As you know, the, the, the Brexit uh, uh, anxieties in the, that produced Brexit were predominantly driven by immigration concerns in the, in the UK. And so they're deeply allergic to all of this. I think it speaks well to the EU that they've offered the three years. Again, I stress that the financial burden needs to be shared beyond the EU budget. They can afford it, but there's no reason why they should have to pay for it alone. This is a global emergency. The U.S. and Britain have roles to play. The only thing I would say is that, you know, the typical refugee in the world today is outside his or her country for more than 18 years. And so it's very optimistic to think that in three years this will be resolved. It would be wonderful if that's the case. But it would require some extremely statesmanlike peacemaking in the very near future, and I suspect uh, some very considerable further uh, peddling back of ambitions by Mr. Putin and some concessions by Ukraine in order to imagine a three-year window that would allow the refugees to be able to go back to Ukraine. And then, of course, all the cost of rebuilding. Today, in the past week, the level of destruction of the major cities radically escalated and is likely to continue to do so in the next few days. The U.S. has given temporary protected status to Ukrainians who are here by Mm -hmm. March 1st. That doesn't seem like very much compared to what other nations are doing. Do you think that the U.S. should be doing more, should be taking in Ukrainians? Yes, we should. That is, again... Um, there'll be many people in uh, asylum in uh, Western Europe who might prefer to be uh, in the U.S. because of family connections, job opportunities, etc. So we too should step up and play a, a, our, our fair share in supporting these refugees. And again, we can do it both by resettlement, that is by issuing uh, visas and permits to bring refugees here to the U.S., as we did you know, way back in 1956 with Hungarians who were quickly moved from Western Europe to the United States. And we can provide financial support uh, to assist the Europeans in the, you know, the temporary integration of these persons into Western Europe. The governments, the taxpayers, we should all step up. The people who should really be at the front of the line to pay for these damages that have been inflicted on the Ukrainian people are Mr. Putin and the oligarchs that support him. And measures are afoot in various places to try to seize, not just freeze, uh, the wealth that uh, Putin and his fellow oligarchs have parked in Western banks, in Western Europe, Canada, the United States, and further afield. Thanks for being on the show. That's Professor Michael Doyle of Columbia Law School and Columbia School of International and Public Affairs.
And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.